Staying Alive in Paragliding, a podcast series with your host, Steph Juncker from Cape Town, South Africa, the owner of Parapax Tandem Paragliding and a competition pilot of 23 years. Real podcasts for real pilots to learn from, to laugh at, and to enjoy the funny and crazy stories that go with it. <laughs> yeah no I'm fine I'm really relaxed it's Friday afternoon I've officially checked out of my virtual office so we're all good we go across the oceans to the north into the Alps and to France in uh, Annecy where a wonderful beautiful and fantastic extremely talented pilot is sitting across from me Emma and I have shared some great moments around the world at paragliding competitions. I have to say, we've, it's as if we've, when we first met, and I do believe it might have been the 2013 World Champs, that we That's spent right. several days walking by rivers together and just kind of, we just kind of fed off each other some kind of energy and whatever. Emma, thank you very much for accepting to be on the podcast. I know it uh, feels very strange for you and you, you express to me in no other terms that why should I talk? Well, what's it with me? You've got such illustrious characters like Barney Woodhead. Uh, <laughs> I mean, how can, how honestly can this podcast come after a podcast by Barney Woodhead? You know, I mean, I'll try. I'll try. <laughs> you, don't, you don't need to try because you're extremely natural. You're really down to earth. Uh, you're a wonderful uh, lady, as I said, and um, you have really a, a lot of beautiful stories. Um, you're often uh, on the forefront as one of the topics of today's podcast is a, 
the BPRA, um, you've been mentioned there, and you are one of those mentors uh, for up-and-coming pilots. As, as, as little as you might admit that or think that, uh, Emma, you are um, uh, a lady who actually has lots to say with regards to helping people in the paragliding world. And uh, this is not a kind of YouTube tutorial to help people to paraglide. It's a podcast and it's a fun moment. So welcome on the podcast again. What's going on in ANSI today? At this very moment, I'm sitting on the terrace. There's a tiny little cloud just popping above the Bourges. I think probably it's about two and a half thousand meters. I'm opposite Lake Annecy. It's sparkling. It's turquoise. A couple of boats on the water. We've been allowed to to sail and go out on the speed boats for the last two weeks now. There were some gliders in the air actually earlier on this afternoon, but they've they've landed now because blowing quite strong northerly, which is a little bit bumpy here. Um, but yeah, that's what's happening in Annecy at the moment, as all around the world, we're a little bit confined, a little bit restricted, but um, you know, France is slowly coming out, which is which is great, be really exciting. So we'll be able to more freedom of movement as of Tuesday, bars and restaurants opening. Yay, I won't ever have to cook again. And I can finally get that drink that I don't have to open the court myself. Uh, yeah, so life's looking good. That is, in a nutshell, actually, your life. Oh, I'm glad that restaurants will be open. I can eat something nice. and You know, I do love to cook. I'm a baker, so I'm not so much of a, you know, I'll cook anything, but I'm a baker. I love making cakes and um, cookies and chocolate um, and anything sweet. So I've got a really sweet tooth, but I love cooking in general, you know, cook my own bread and all that sort of thing, healthy eating. You are a very healthy lady. Uh, we won't talk about your age or anything, but you are, uh, um, I would say you're in your young uh, 40s and uh, um, <laughs> you moved down to Paris with your two children some years ago. You're on your second uh, chance at marriage. Uh, I'm, it's an institution I don't uh, particularly subscribe to. Uh, Tracy and I tenure together, that's cool. But uh, Steve is your husband. He's in the finances. You sell property in ANSI. Uh, just as an introduction, tell us more about yourself. Tell us about your life. I, you know, I'm incredibly lucky. I live in, the, in, a, in a fantastic place. I didn't come to Annecy many years ago to, to paraglide. In actual fact, when I moved to Annecy, I didn't paraglide at all. Um, I learned paragliding through uh, through my husband, Steve, and he took me up on, on tandem at the weekend. The more I flew tandem, the more I became absolutely terrified. And so that's how I actually learned to, to fly solo is because I wanted to be in control and know what was going on. But yeah, Annecy is a fantastic place. There's skiing just around the corner, um, you know, there's swimming uh, in the summer, the lake's beautiful. It's a really very, very privileged privileged area and I'm very, very lucky to, to, to live here. So my, um, you know, I work, I have a day job. Unfortunately, I can't fly all the time. I have to feed the habit. But, you know, I also ride, uh, ride horses. I have two lovely horses, one who's retired now and one, one newbie who's absolutely beautiful. So I try to balance my time equally between being able to feed my habits and, you know, and do a, a proper job of my, of my work as a real estate agent. Yeah, that's right. Uh, um, I, I do like to look into even people I know like yourself um, find out something I don't know. I landed on a the very first website that basically came up uh, was uh, fed my fed my need, and I'm going to read here um, from uh, and quote from this AngloInfo.com. I really do play every day and live life to the fullest. Sport is my passion, and I have to do something outside every day! Exclamation mark. I took up paragliding and ANSI when I moved here from Paris with my children. Now represent Great Britain in the sport. 
ANSI is the top three destinations worldwide for paragliding because of its complex aerology and natural beauty. The views are incredible. Up here during the competition season, I fly for a couple of hours a day. At this year's competition season approaches, as this year's, um, Emma has planned her time so that she can continue to compete and run her estate agency, uh, Legat. So that's obviously a branch of an estate agency that you have. My first competition is in mid-June in Spain, then it's the Southern Alps, and it ends in Macedonia. This probably was written last year, I suppose. Tell us more. Yes, I mean, wow, it all sounds great. <laughs> that was, I think that must have been written last year. I mean, it's all true. During the competition season, I do try and get out there every day, every other day, at least, you know, try and get my wing out, do some ground handling. As the BPRA have stressed, Barney Woodhead in particular, who sort of took me under his wing a few years ago and really improved my ground handling skills, which, um, let's face it, were absolutely dreadful so I do try and do something every day to do with paragliding whether it's you know looking at my kit I'm going flying just to sort of keep my hand in and so that I don't I don't sort of log off from paragliding particularly over the winter time but when the competition season starts yeah for sure you know definitely out there and in actual fact since this confinement at the beginning of March the weather the first two months the first two months in March were just the most unbelievable flying conditions that we've had out here for years. And everybody was looking at the sky going, oh, my God, I can't believe it. We can't go out. We can't go out. We can't go out. And there were a couple of people that got fined for ground handling down at Dusard. And it was very, very strict. Yeah, it was very, very strict here. So since we've been able to fly in the last couple of weeks, you know, everybody's been waiting for the opportunities. And inevitably since then, the wind has been very strong from the north so I've flown a few times I've got a lot of work commitments on at the moment so I'm kind of oh it's a bit frustrating I have to I have to find a good balance oh nice one uh, Emma just before this podcast you were giving me a little surprise surprise uh, the property market's very very busy tell us about that yeah, the property market's incredibly busy. In actual fact, I mean, I haven't stopped working since since uh, since the virus, and have sold properties doing virtual tours, sold off plan, um, just sort of going around empty houses with my little WhatsApp camera, and and that's been very successful, and it's incredible. I mean, we all thought that perhaps there'd be a little slump. Um, in the market here but it, it's becoming very very evident that you know this is a wonderful paradise bubble that we live in and it's very sought after and the sort of the phenomenon now is that people who've been cooped up in big cities the trend is that now they all want to leave the cities and they all want to move to the country they all realize that they can work remotely they don't have to go to the office and this area is sort of predominant for um, well, I mean, for anybody internationally, but obviously people from from Lyon are all flocking here and falling over themselves to to grab a piece of paradise. So, you know, business is business is very very good. I'd like to ask you on that uh, note. I mean, what kind of percentage increases or what kind of property? Uh, give us throw some figures my way. Um, what what would a piece a small piece of land cost? What's a per square meter cost of land there? What was it before when you started? How long ago did you start with this? I started in property. I started with my property management company back in 2002 when I first moved here from from Paris. Um, and then um, it's only recently that I sort of migrated into sales. So I've been in sales for the last just over three years, um, simply because the money is better. Uh, but um, mm-hmm. I mean, the you know the 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 figures. I mean, the figures are up 
demands up to anything between 16 and 22 percent um, year for year for year, like like from from last year. So it's really it's going up. The kind of properties that I sell, it can be anything. You know what I love about this business is. Um, that I can get, you know, your first time buyers in France or a really young couple that are waiting, you know, waiting to start a family or boyfriend and girlfriend who just got a tiny budget and all, you know, all they can they can scrape together is a one bedroom flat or some some cute little chalet down down in Dusard or somewhere around the lake. Um, you know, I mean, prices started you know, earlier on this year, I sold an apartment. Um, actually, it was a really cool apartment. I was looking at it for myself. I thought, oh, they don't, you know, let's let's see what we can do. But they, it was a tiny sort of two-bedroom apartment. It was about 54 square meters, and it overlooked that massive, great big landing field in Dusard. And um, I won't mention their name, but they um, picked that up for 165,000. Which was, you know, which was a good a good price. It was a really clean apartment, nothing to do. So they moved in. They were absolutely delighted. So it can be, you know, smaller budgets like that, or alternatively, you know, if somebody's got three and a half million to spend, then you know, I've got a lovely old uh, Maison de France chateau in Annecy le Vieux. Uh, if anybody like that out there, <laughs> so it just depends. And what's great about what's great about what I do is that you get to meet so many different people from different different walks of life and they've all got different priorities and different things that they want to do in the area it's not necessarily all about skiing or all about paragliding or all about being on the lake it's just um being in a beautiful place and having so much choice so that's what we sort of sell in on here i think you are selling a kind of lifestyle there i think that a lot of people it's a it's a playground there yeah yeah yeah, I mean you can you can do absolutely anything here from hill walking, you can take a guide and and learn all about mountain flora, you can obviously go on the lake, you can paraglide, you can you can hike in the winter, you can ski, I mean you name it, archery, anything. You name it, you can you can do it here. So it's a playground that suits absolutely everybody and everybody's ability. You know, you don't have to be a massive, you know, cardio beast. You can you could just get your your mountain poles and go up some gentle some gentle paths and and just take it all in. You know, we walk up the highest peaks here and we've got a 360 panorama. You can see Mont Blanc. It's just absolutely stunning. And then all the way down to past Grenoble into the southern Alps. It's just it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I never thought that I would be a mountain you know, I never thought that I'd be a mountain person. I originally moved here for, for the skiing, but the mountains have really grown on me, actually, and I, I don't really want to live anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're a very good saleswoman, by the way, uh, Greta. You've, you've, you've <laughs> sold properties in the process. <laughs> Great. No, I mean, it's uh, it's just fun. It's I'm very I'm very fortunate to be able to love my job, to love where I live. That that corny expression, life is beautiful. It, it It's I'm very lucky. Very, very lucky. Oh, life is beautiful and as cliched or as as, uh, yeah, as you say, cheesy. That's not cheesy. That's a, you know, a corny, you said. Um, I, I, life is beautiful, but life is what you make it. And uh, so many people I feel are uh, – look at this lockdown. In South Africa, I wanted to give a comment about moving to the countryside. And, and like you spoke of the uh, Lyon crowd who are rushing there to try and grab what they can. And people with a bit of money are suddenly moving to the countryside. I spent two months in the countryside in this forced lockdown we had. And we didn't know it was going to be two months. It was supposed to be three weeks, but everybody knew it would be extended up front. And the difference in my and our mentality, I had some staff with me there, 
the the people who lived in the city of Cape Town, just an hour and a half drive away, was unbelievable. It was chalk and cheese how people were having yeah. this kind of Absolutely. I mean, totally. I just, you know, I really felt for the people that have been cooped up in the city. You know, there are some people that don't even have a balcony to, to go on. And and certainly in, in the last month, things have been a little bit more lenient in terms of going out and exercising. But, you know, the first month was absolutely dire and, and it was so hot. I mean, we had one of the hottest months of, of March on, on record. We weren't we couldn't swim. People in, in the cities weren't even allowed out, you know, like Paris, for example, they weren't even allowed out to, to, to walk around the, the, the Berge de Seine. It was, it was drastic and I really felt for those people and I thought to myself, how very lucky I am. Wouldn't it be great to be able to just go and pick up all those people with a truck and bring them back here? <laughs> Confinement was, was reasonably reasonably easy for, for us here, honestly. You know, um, we have some beautiful scenery to look at and we are outdoors and in pure air. I completely agree with what you're saying there. In South Africa, we, of course, have our slums, we have our townships. And can you imagine somebody being confined to, along with four other people in just a place that they are there just to sleep at at night? And they're in there, it doesn't matter what the temperature is, they have to stay locked in there, otherwise the military are going to threaten to beat them up. And they're kind of, they're kind of heavy-handed. But I have to say that South Africa and a slum, a small 20-square-meter apartment in Paris, I don't think are very different. I think it's the same kind of locked up. It doesn't matter if you're in a nicely white wall with a nice piece of art to look at, or if you're in your shack, you, you are still locked up. Uh, us humans are far too social for that. So uh, let's move on to some paragliding, because that's quite a nice thing, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> you, <laughs> you love competition flying. Um, you have two children. Uh, just tell us quickly, I can't remember the age of your kids. Uh, how old are they? So my son's 29 and my daughter's 25. Um, my son's at the moment, he's cooped up in, in an apartment in right slap bang in the centre of London. He doesn't seem to be minding it too much. He told me that he had um, a wild parakeet fly onto his balcony. So he sort of adopted this parrot that's appeared from somewhere, which is which is quite nice. He lives on his own, girlfriend less. So anybody wants to uh, hook up with my son, 29, London, great. You can cut that bit out. Uh, and my daughter is in... <laughs> <laughs> my daughter Saskia. <laughs> my daughter Saskia. Um, she is currently in. Well, she has been since the beginning of the year. She's been in Brisbane, in Australia. So she decided to stay over there, whilst uh, you know the potential of lockdown was going to uh, last for a while. Um, she's working for um, a real estate promoter over there. Um, having a great time and then hopefully being able to to finish her her year out and travel to New Zealand in October and then she'll be coming home before the end of the year. So I really look forward to seeing her. Ah, oh, that's wonderful. Um, I had to uh, I have to notice that you didn't give her a single or attached status. <laughs> she's absolutely gorgeous. She's she's lovely. She's she's a very pitiful. How do you say pitiful? Lively. She's very lively and bubbly, and she has a, a wonderful boyfriend. Um, and they've been together for for a good few years. And uh, yeah, no, they're they're great. They're great. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to admit you were still your son who's single, but not a mention of your daughters. Uh, no, she's definitely not married. single. <laughs> well, now that we've got that out of the way, let's carry on. Yeah. Well, very bubbly you are, uh, Emma, and I don't think it's just the glass of champagne that you love, which you have next to you right now. I think you are... Uh, <laughs> um, you, yes, it's Friday afternoon. You said so. It's, it's just past 1 p.m. and you're allowed to have a drink, so uh, go for it. 
Grace, that's the kind of life that you and your husband live. You guys really enjoy yourself. You're not chasing competitions as 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 a, a kind of hungry girl who really, really has to win, like some I've seen. And I don't want to. Uh, this is not gentrified. I, I want to say any person, a man, woman, whatever, uh, that that same kind of hunger exists amongst one another. You're not greedy. You are. You, if I may, and I'm I'm not speaking for you. You're going to correct me here. If I may, you are often quite hard on yourself when you fail in a result. Um, please tell us about your competition feeling, your experience. and. Oh, you know, it's interesting what you've just said there because it brings back years of, yeah, years of competition. I mean, I'm a com- I'm a competitor at heart. I've always done competition right from a very early age, whether it's been at school and athletics or rounders or whatever. So competition is something that for me is an absolute necessity in order to learn and improve and also compare yourself to others because I think without being able to compare yourself, you it's, it's difficult for... Um, for me to sort of move myself forward in a in in a competition you know in a competition mindset and um, I you know at the beginning a competition was a real sort of love-hate relationship it was you know I really want I came into paragliding competition probably far too early in hindsight but that's what I wanted to do um, I was um, supported by you know some fantastic people um, who when I was when I was you know in my paragliding debut um i met some some wonderful th- people through my husband who is a long time paraglider pilot for some 20 years and and was on the world cup circuit many many years ago um but i met some wonderful people i mean i met russ and um uh, we were talking about you know some of the famous names earlier on uh, john pendry i was taken i was taken under the wing of jockey sanderson um and his crew who took me on my first Wow, that's a memorable. That was a memorable. Moment. They took me on my first cross country down in San Andre, and I remember at the time I, I had 12 hours flying experience, and I went on one of Jockey's cross country courses, and wow. I was still forward launching. So I remember they had to get me off. They had to get off the hill before sort of like 10:30 in the morning, and I had to stay in the air because otherwise our San Andre was completely blown out so everybody else afterwards I was looking at them reverse launching reverse launching I was thinking wow I've really got to learn how to do that anyway on that particular week I uh yeah um Chris White who who was working uh, hand in hand with Jockey they took me on my first 35k triangle around San Andre that was one of my really memorable moments and that kind of got me into the improving, you know, the improvement bug. I have to improve. I have to improve. How can I do that? So the only, the obvious way for me was to was to go into competition. So the following year, I wrote an email to Calvo, uh, who at the time was running all the uh, the British uh, Championship competitions, and there was a competition at um, Saint Jean Montclair down in the Southern Alps. And I wrote in this humble little email saying, I know that I haven't flown for very long, but please um i'll try my best do you think you could please uh, let me register for the competition and so that was the start that was the start of the whole thing that was sort of the whole thing and that was way back i mean when was that 2010 or something 2009 2010 but yeah it's sort of been afterwards you know two or three years into competition it was a kind of this love and hate relationship with competition because I really wanted to do every comp that I could so I used to do sort of between six and eight comps I was away from home an awful lot probably neglected my family a great deal missed them a lot too 
but I had to, it was like this thing that was eating at me and it became almost an all-consuming an all-consuming thing to such a point where a few years later I thought whoa this is this has got to stop so let's just take the foot off the competition pedal take a couple of years out have a think about where you want your flying to go what you want to do what you want to achieve and then go back to it which is what I did last year a couple of years ago so I went back to it with a completely different mindset much more chilled out less hard on myself during the actual competition, but much more with an analytical mind. And all that was an actual fact, thanks to the BPRA and Russ Ogden and Malin and um, Barney and some of the great guys on there who, you know, I really aspire to. Some of them are probably the same age as my, some, you know, my kids, but they're wonderful pilots. And with listening to how they, you know, prepare for a competition, listening to their debriefings and becoming part of that, really helped me just you know chill out and think of competition in a completely different way which I think in the end has made me a better competition pilot whether my results show or not it to me is really irrelevant but I've the mindset is much better oh nice yeah that's uh, uh, extremely interesting listening to you and uh, your stories uh I mean, with 12 hours of flying a cross-country course and uh, hello, take it or leave it, poo, you're into the sport. Uh, you're either going to shit yourself or you're going to love it, girl, and uh, you choose which one you'd like. <laughs> I see your facial expression as I say that, and I, I don't know if there's angst on your face or if there's a, a joyous moment of remembering that you survived it. I mean, it was extraordinary because, you know, I knew so little. And in fact, the debriefing that evening with Jockey, we sort of went around and said, oh, you know, how many hours have you flown and everything else? And I said, how many hours I've flown? And there was this kind of, oh, <laughs> so it was, uh, it was, it was really interesting. And I, yeah, I was on my flight on the way back um, from the Peak de Chamat back into the landing field where it was at the end of the evening, you know, the evening restitution, which, you know, ignorance is bliss thank goodness um you know and I was slowly going up and up and up and up when actually I always wanted to do was go down go down go down and Chris White was on the radio saying okay so probably now's a good time to pull in big ears and I came on the radio and said what's big ears what's big ears (laughs) 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 and I was saying what line, what colour, what colour line do I need to pull to pull in big ears? Anyway, I eventually got it, pulled in big ears and, and was probably in the air for about another hour whilst getting to the ground and, and not getting um, not getting uh, sucked up into the little bit of cloud that was left during the day. But that was that was quite memorable and thinking, my God, I've just got so much to learn, so much to learn. And then, yeah, I, you know, I've always stuck with Jockey. He's been sort of my one of my gurus through throughout my my paragliding career and now it's wonderful because um you know he's taking care of the british team which is really really exciting so it's almost like it's come round a full loop oh but but that's so great i mean firstly i want to comment on on on, on your or your your reaction or you, you may have a sip of bubbly by the way i see you uh, gagging there for a little sip of moisture on the lips yes <laughs> and for the listeners she at the at the speed of light grabbed at her glass and sucks yeah. down <laughs> jockey's amazing he's in the podcast i did with him is also extremely funny uh funny that you mentioned russ ogden and john pendry i've done podcasts with them too they're all coming out they're all there and it, they're all so interesting uh, this of course has been a super learning journey for myself but the comment i wanted to make a moment ago was 
that you in your reaction in telling that moment that you were still an hour in the air on big ears on your way down, you told it with a kind of half calm, like you've been horse riding, you've been competing on lots of levels, and you kind of taken that in your stride. Would you would you mind just uh, fill me in there? What- I mean, as I say, paragliding, I, I didn't realize when I started learning this sport how much there is to learn, how humble you need to be. Um, I remember Russ saying to me years and years ago, um, because I was originally a, um, an ozone pilot when I started flying, so I got wonderful. I started off on a Buzz, the first Buzz Z, and then I got an Addict 2, which in my memory, thinking back on it, was was probably the most wonderful wing that I felt in tune with um, and then after that I think it was the M4 um, and I remember Russ saying at the time you know between oh that's right there was a delta between the two and um, I remember Russ was, Russ was saying to me at the time he said don't be in too much of a hurry take it easy take it all in you've got time this is a sport where you don't have to be under the age of 30 to be able to be successful um, take it easy and in hindsight it was a really very valuable thing that that he said to me whether I would have done it differently I don't know you know I have the hunger to to compete and do sport you know I love that it's part of my life but they they were moments where I didn't realize how much there was to learn I mean it's I don't know it's like maybe playing golf or doing some other sport it's just you know if you go out and you have a really great day you think yay a really great day I've won the competition or I've won the task or I've come in the top 10 or whatever and or I've even come last but it was a great task and you think wow you know I know that tomorrow I can do better so let's go out and do it all over again and uh, one thing I learned during competition is that you have to reset your clock it doesn't matter what you've done on one day you have to reset and start all over again the next day because it's great to ride on the high but you don't ever want to get too excited. It's like to quote Mr. Woodhead in the previous podcast, you've got to keep your mm-mm, in your pants. <laughs> the monkey in the pants. And that's so true, you know. And there are some pilots that are so cool and calm and collected. And as a newbie, you go in there and you think, God, you know, that, that guy, he's not he's not completely ecstatic that he's just won the task or, you know, he's a champion. How, how come he's so cool and he's not jumping up and down for joy? The reason is because they, they're humble and they've they've learned that it's not all win, win, win. And you can't be like too super overexcited. Um, you know, Ross, for example, he's, you know, he's always got a big smile on his face. You know, he loves it. He's doing he had a, he's had an amazing last few seasons. You know, it's almost like a comeback from from years before. It's been fantastic. And he's always really calm and collected. Uli Prince, who Barney mentioned earlier, who lives here, um, always so cool, so humble, you know, smile. And I mean, it's you learn so much from those people. And Jesus calls us to pray. Uh, yeah, it's the bells down in Tawa. What time is it? Four o'clock. We might have a whole, might have a whole chorus of bells going on. Don't know. Listen to it, and maybe we make a small prayer or uh, hold hands and sing Kumbaya. I don't know. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Robbie Whittle will like that when we were talking about religion and politics in his podcast. It's like what he is really talking Rob- about humble people. Another name. I mean, I just finished up cleaning up his podcast this morning. It is just unbelievably, 
amazing how humble a guy can be. On every answer, he, he, every question, he's, 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 the first thing is, I'm probably not the right person to ask on that. And he's like, so the right person to ask. And then, and, and then uh, he comes with gems of answers and, and, and absolutely says, right, so getting into flying, um, you mentioned some of the tips that Russell, of course, who is really, really good at, at coming across and giving us a lot of uh, very wise words in, in terms of things we should learn and things we should not do. Um, Emma, can you think of what may be your top tips, your, your top do or not do in paragliding? Number one, and I remember always, Judy Ledden, who's another sky goddess. She, um, when I first started, I wrote her an email. I said, Judy, what do I need to do? Give, can you give me some tips? She said, tip number one, get to know your instruments. So my tip number one would be get to know your instruments. Second tip, fly your own race. That's, you know, that's one I got from Jockey. Don't fly anybody else's. Fly your own, whether, whether you're you know, just coming into competition or you've been doing competitions again, you have to, you have to analyze, but you have to fly your own, you know, your, to your own ability, your own capability, push yourself a little, if that's what you feel comfortable doing, but you have to fly your own race. Organization, um, the rest of it, I don't know, I'm a pilot who kind of tends to zone out on takeoff. I tend to put myself in a corner and during a competition, I don't, I don't speak much. I don't talk much. I don't. I don't chit chat. I'm not on launch, sort of lying in the grass with a blade of grass between my teeth. You know, I just. I like to stay in my in my corner. I think every pilot will find their own zone to be in, but those are the things that have worked that have worked well for me. And the other thing is, you know, as you say, don't be, don't beat yourself up. Don't beat yourself up if you have a bad day. Try and analyze what you've done at the end of the day, whether it's whether you've flown across country or whether it's competition or whether it's just been a top to bottom, it doesn't matter. But at the end of at the end of it, you know, go home and think about it and think about the good things that you've done, the positive things, the things that you would have done better if you do it again. And keep those keep those things in mind. I think I think those for me are the key elements. Oh, that's really nice. Oh, so um, know your instruments definitely. I agree with you about uh, finding your zen or finding your mojo. Everybody is different. Uh, you are definitely one to zone out on the takeoff site. You you definitely take your huge paraglider, nearly as big as your own. <laughs> you don't have a petite body, but you certainly do have an athletic body that is not massive. So you are you are on the takeoff site, and there you are moving around with your things, and you need that quiet. You need that meditation. You need that kind of getting into it uh, before you take off you if if you were to be rushed and there was a lot of noise and a lot of you probably would not be that comfortable uh you want to comment on that yeah i know that would be totally my idea of an absolute nightmare i remember in actual fact in macedonia last year do you remember there was a task where we had to switch takeoffs at the very last minute we were one of the the, the last i don't know 20 to take off because we had to hoik our gliders sort of 500 meters up the hill and take off somewhere else that kind of that is for me that's the worst that's the worst nightmare because then you know you have a tendency to fluff your launch or I just you know it really stresses me out so I remember on that particular day and it's sort of a general thing for me I'll just think right okay let's roll back you're one of the last to take off it's okay positive side of that is that you can come from the back you can push your full bar because you've got 120 other people in front of you 
all marking the thermals and they're all marking the course for you. So it's something that I realized about five years ago from competing. It doesn't matter if you're at the back because it actually makes it easier. It makes it much, much easier. All you need to do is just push the bar and just go, just go and have confidence that you can get that thermal, that you can reach that spot. Calculate how far you need to go, but have confidence that if those people in front of you can thermal up on that tiny little blip of a hill, then you can too have, you know, have faith in yourself. Ah, that's right. That's nice, nice. I mean, when we last saw each other, this wonderful time in Khrushchevo in Macedonia, and again, Khrushchevo in Macedonia have been coming up again and again in these podcasts, but for very good reason. I mean, give us your comment on that place, a fantastic place with a June wide open. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, what's not to love? What is there not to love? I don't know. I haven't found that yet. I I really haven't found that. The people are absolutely incredibly generous. It's very economical to go there you can stay there for a month easily on a tiny budget um the people there are so humble um the accommodation's great the flying is amazing it's like a european columbia um i will go back there again and again and again and again the the every aspect of flying there is generous whether you're flying on the hills whether you go back into the mountains a little bit where you're flying the flats um, out in the front whether there's sunshine there's no sun there's lightning going off there's rain there's hail it you know everything it's got everything at the end of a at the end of a day when you just stick your thumb out and you get picked up by somebody on a you know motorcycle or a donkey and cart or a bus it's you know the organization there is amazing you know i highly recommend it for anybody for any level you can fly there at any level whether it's a fully blown you know fully blown world championships um last year or or whether you're a whether you're a beginner and you want to have your first taste of of top to bottoms there's it it's just i love it it's fantastic it looks like I'll be heading there again this August to September. I'm, I'm in cahoots with Pepe Maleki. We made uh, such a cool, uh, we made such a nice course together, Pepe and I, in December, one week before the portable competition uh, in South Africa, and we, uh, wow, we, we, we had such a good time. But the people learned so much in one week. It's, it, it must be like an on steroids jockey course where somebody comes with 12 hours and does their first cross, cross country. It was really like that. Yeah? Fantastic. And, um, and Martin Jovanovsky really wants me to go back there and also do things with him. So maybe the three of us will do something cool together and offer some kind of whatever fun stuff. But you've got to love Macedonia. It's a really, really nice place. But that's not the only place in the world to fly. Of course, Ansi being another and St. Andre and around. And it brings me to our next question. Where do you really, really rate as your one or two or three top, top places? That- um some of the some of those change all the time you know in the beginning i would have said san andre is um you know was 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 one of my one of my favorites for many 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 years annecy obviously here that slowly migrated with how my flying has migrated and where competitions have taken me to fly um you know in other places uh last year i discovered brazil which uh just blew my mind andradas um just so stylish, uh, beautiful takeoffs in every single direction. Um, a Kiko grass, whatever that, those blades of grasses. I mean, you could have, you could have eaten your picnic off the grass. It was just pristine, beautiful takeoff, immaculate. Yeah, lovely. Clubhouse, showers. I mean, it was really, it was really classy. So that was, that was lovely. And the flying was amazing, really, really amazing. Long distance flying, long tasks. 
Uh, and I know that people fly long distance, have flown long distance from there as well. So I'd say that's probably up, quite up on my on my list, my top three list. Um, Macedonia, yes, and and the good old the good old Colombia, the good old Roldanillo. I mean, it's it's great. I've become more sort of partial to flatland flying rather than rather than mountain flying. Um, I didn't know much about flatland flying when I first started flying. Obviously, there's not much flat around Annecy. As a flying style, I prefer strong conditions and you know, to be absolutely hoofing to a point of almost being terrified, but there's no time to, to, to really appreciating flatland flying because it's a completely different skill and you have to slow everything down. And I'm still learning a lot about that. And I find that really very, very exciting. Just the difference in pace that you have to take into consideration when you're, when you're flying around a course. And for me, uh, flatland flying is where it's at. I love the mountains, don't get me wrong. I love a view. I love to be high up in the Alps and look down on white peaks. And I visited Switzerland for the first time in my life uh, for flying. Uh, well, I'm talking about the, the Fiesch Valley. I'd never flown there. Wow, it's one thing. But flatland flying, it's where it's at. This uh, last December in Portable, we made most of our tasks right out in the valley when it could work. And shit, it was so cool, like fully blazing on the flats. It's yeah, what's that place out there? Windy, windy hook, wind, uh, hook, where yeah. it's obviously very windy. <laughs> it's very windy, windy. windy corner, and it's the capital of Namibia. You don't want to go and paraglide in Namibia. That's for very fast sailplanes that have a lot of options, not us. <laughs> Or for your South African uh, record breakers flying at over 125k an hour. <laughs> It's unbelievable. Eh? I mean, Neville's podcast, if you listen to the details of it, you, and he's saying, oh, yeah, no, uh, it's, I felt okay. And I'm like, are you mad? I would, my whole body would have fallen out of my bum already. Since I, I have huge admiration for people who managed to stay in the air for, for that long. You know, I can't imagine being in the air for 10, 12 hours. I can barely manage to concentrate for three and a half. Probably three and a half, four is my limit. But carry on concentrating for a whole 10 12 hours is incredible really hats off to those guys and girls of course emma i actually got my idea changed about that in just such a podcast with charles norwood uh he went and made these uh, first a 300 then a 400 kilometer yes. flight and uh, he was saying there's something about a 10 hour flight and you and i are the same you know we are super adhd uh, version x so well, you're less than me you have a slight but less energy than me but you still have a lot of it um but, uh, we, uh, you know, after three hours, we've kind of had enough. Okay, all right, I, 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 my brain's going to explode. And he said, no, 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 you just keep going and, you know, your pace differs. And so, actually, it's, I'm thinking, wow. Maybe it goes with people's personalities. I mean, Charles seems, you know, he's a really chilled out, he's a really chilled out kind of guy, very easygoing. So I can imagine him, you know, flying for, for 10 hours and thinking, yeah, this is really cool. You know, I'm having a really good time. But yeah, for you and I, I think it will be, it will be a lot, a lot harder. Is that a jam jar? <laughs> I wish it was a real jam jar. Today, we are not allowed to buy alcohol in South Africa. On Monday, there's going to be a queue of people for two days uh, outside the, the, the bottle stores. But cigarettes may still not be sold. You can do any sport any time, but you can't do it on a park or a beach. They are still closed. <laughs> the politicians, if they're allowed to sell T-shirts or not, or only winter clothing, it's, 
I know there's no consistency whatsoever. I do have to say the last uh, the last couple of weeks before the confinement started to lift here, there were some people that were just thinking, I am so not going to abide by those rules anymore. You know, there are people swimming in the lake this morning. They're not supposed to, but they were. That's the French and they're revolutionaries. Then you were just launching your boat for the very first time in two months, uh, a few minutes ago or an hour ago. You said, uh, if I just need an hour just to put the boat in the water, for it to taste the water for the first time. How did that feel? Uh, it didn't because <laughs> it didn't because I turned the engine on. There was a screw missing, which is called, I don't know what it's called in English, in French it's a durite. But the sailboat's in. We've been sailing a few times, which has been really lovely, on, uh, on Aix-les-Bains which is a lake that's a little bit about half an hour further away from Annecy. But it's a huge lake, very, very deep, and you can have some really seriously good good wind um, there. So that's the sailing. This, this boat here is a, it's a speedboat, so it's for, it's for sort of, you know, adrenaline junkie. And the way you're speaking doesn't make me sound like you have too many hours in the day for work. That's quite interesting the way you live your life with the horses and the paragliding. And you say you try and do something paragliding every day, but yet you're a very intelligent woman. I often see you with a book. I don't mean when I wake up. Uh, I mean when uh, when I do. <laughs> yeah, I like to. I like to. Um, it's part of my zoning out thing on launch. You know, I mean, I I I think probably or possibly people have taken that for being a little bit antisocial. It's not like that at all. You know, I love people. I am the most social person you can think. But I, during a competition, it's part of my thing. You know, I have to I have to zone out. And putting my nose in a book is maybe kind of a sign of I'm zoning out or, you know, I need to be in this space, you know, please don't come and talk to me now. Talk to me when I haven't got my book in. But yeah, I often I often have a book. And also, you know, when I bomb out and sometime retrieve is going to take a while, I need something to do. That's no, true. And uh, rather than uh, staring on our mobile devices, which uh, I've just done a podcast a couple of days ago with some paraglider pilots about how addicted are we to our uh, mobile devices, which is, of course, a hornet's nest uh, along with a, a super strange concept. If you have any other great tips or advice or anything you'd like to say or anything that's on your mind about paraglider, Wow, where do I where do I start? Uh, one thing I could say is if you get the opportunity to go and fly in England, go to fly in England or Scotland or, or Wales, but go and fly in Great Britain. It's a wonderful place to fly. It's beautiful. It's like a, it's like a, it's out of a storybook. So I can I could highly recommend that. It's beautiful. One of my you know my most memorable flights was from from Scotland in the Cairngorms. It was uh, during a North South Cup, um, which is a friendly competition that there is in the UK in May every year. And we flew uh, right across over the boonies of Scotland, which was incredible, absolutely incredible, mind-blowing scenery. Yeah, if you have the possibility to do that or see a, a, a good weather, um, good weather to, to, to head over there. And then just, just, I guess, just enjoy, just enjoy paragliding, trying not to be too hard on oneself, which is perhaps I'm not very good at doing you know don't do as i say do as i do or vice versa but um enjoy it enjoy it enjoy the experience take it all in and not to care about what anybody else thinks of you or your ability or what you're flying or the gear that you've got or what color you know anorak you've got nobody gives a flying fuck do your own thing be your own person and go your own way and be safe yeah, oh, great. Uh, that's uh, that's 
probably for me, one of the gems that you've said today, be your own person in our sport. A lot of people in our sport seem to follow the herd mentality. That guy's taking off. Why shouldn't I take off? Uh, meanwhile, don't compare yourself. Don't be a sheep in our sport. Be, be yourself. It doesn't matter if you can only scrub together a few hundred euros to buy that next upgrade on a glider. Do it. It doesn't matter that your glider is two or three generations behind. It doesn't matter that that person is wearing that neon pink and purple 80s flight suit which is now back in vogue which i hope never comes back in vogue i know it was quite cool (laughs) cool. i wouldn't mind a bit of the old shocker shocker retro future pink (laughs) (laughs) that's true future pink even on men was really a big one in the the 80s (laughs) (laughs) you're doing for the rest of the what do you do what are your plans for the rest of the summer well, everything's on standby. On Monday, I go on a motorcycle trip. I basically hit the road with another guy who also paraglides. Both of us paragliders on motorcycles, and we're going. It's not completely illegal, but then nobody knows what is legal, what's not allowed, what is allowed. Illegal cigarettes are being sold second to none. A minister who's living in the house of, uh, of uh, the biggest uh, importers of illegal cigarettes into South Africa. Um, no, it's disgusting. It's, it's a shocker. It's turned into a political, uh, and I'm sorry to say this word, but an African political game, which is um, just playing into the hands of thieves and corruption. The thieves are going to come back so strongly when this uh, thing finishes. Uh, mm-hmm. We're going to see protests and suicide rates shoot up in our country. I mean, already um, uh, uh, abuse, uh, what you call it, a uh, home abuse, uh, husband, wife and children mm-hmm. abuse. I mean, you cannot even fathom the scale of this. At the moment, in just our province around Cape Town, um, the Western Cape, it's a thousand cases of corona a day. 30 people, 50 people are dying a day. So, you know, now it's only beginning here. Uh, In the townships, it's business as usual now. Nobody with any masks. Everyone's kind of, okay, we're tired of lockdown now in South Africa. It's like we're going on with our lives. Meanwhile, they don't realize that if we don't play the game here, we can be really in trouble. So So you're you're just in the throes of it. You're just literally just starting. It doesn't make my life any shorter. It's just unfortunately a small inconvenience for me. That means I can't be in Europe right now to come and enjoy the summer with you guys and have long days here. I'm in shorter and shorter days. But you know what? I'm alive. I've got something to eat and drink and uh, I've got a roof over my head now. Well, come over soon, as soon as you can. I was going to say jump in the car and drive. It might be a long way. You know, uh, when people have been joking with me and been saying, uh, yeah, um, uh, what are you going to do? Like, you, you're not the only one to ask. My friends and family are asking me, Steph, you know, this is so unusual for you. I literally spent the very first winter in Cape Town uh, 20 years ago when I moved down here from Johannesburg, uh, where I had, of course, my clown business and then um, started the paragliding business here 20 years ago. And as I arrived, I was like, bugger this for a bad idea this winter. Um, that's why I've been a migratory bird all of these years. And this is the second winter in 20 years that I spent in Cape Town and around. And I'm thinking, like, just accept it, you know, get get on with it. But yeah, I, I promise you the point. You have to yeah. come to terms with it, don't you, and not fight it anymore when you realize that that's where you are. You think, right, okay, let's just get on with it. And that's the very reason that I launched on these podcasts. It's no secret. It's uh, I need to occupy myself from somebody who has to be a busy yeah, there's so many things to do. I mean, a few a few weeks ago, we were like making masks for for the local community, and I work for a um, for a, a local charity here called uh, Lake Aid, which was started up by by the expat community here, and we help. I mean, I don't like to use the word refugees, but you know, the people that come to France and that that are waiting for their papers, and so we provide baby clothes and we take the kids on outings and things like that, and and so we're making all you know all, all sorts of different sort of shapes and forms of of masks just to to give out. To the, to the local community. I mean, there's, there's so many things that you can do, isn't there, when you're, when you're stuck at home. 
went onto YouTube to this, uh, and I found this uh, Japanese uh, watercolor artist. Can't understand a word he's saying. You paint. You do. So- you do something with your spare time. And I couldn't go and see my horse for six weeks. So I couldn't even go to the stable. So you're at home and you think, right, you get on with it. Plant up the vegetable garden, do all the jobs that you say that you've never got time to do and learn something new. So I'm learning to paint and maybe learning some Japanese. You've been in Japan before, have you? Never. I've never been to Japan. I've never been to Asia apart from Singapore. That doesn't really count. Wow. No, listen, listen, listen. You have to go and travel in Asia. It's 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 it's, it's a no-brainer. There are countries like Vietnam and and Burma and Laos and uh, Cambodia, uh, Thailand. Um, oh, I mean, even Malaysia. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, India, of course, that's southern uh, southern Asia. And, uh, but but Japan. Wow. So I've only been twice in Japan. Discovered, uh, I've never discovered the, the the Asias, and it's a real shame because I love you know I love their I love the food, humble people. I like the way their way of being. They're kind. You will love it. Emma, you must visit uh, Japan. So Tracy and I went there last uh, February for nearly a month and we did a big tour around using the Shinkansen. You take a rail ticket. You have to organize it out of the country. Remember that. And and you basically, just outside uh, Fuji and a view over Fuji, just outside Tokyo, is a, uh, a museum of, of a natural uh, pigment uh, water painting. Oh, and wow. you, have, you have, if that's your only reason to go there, it's a mind. Okay, because this this guy, this Japanese, um, this Japanese watercolorist, what's he called, um, Shabisaki, he um, he's always talking about the colors and mixing colors and how it's really important to learn how to mix colors instead of buying multiple tubes of paint, and it's absolutely fascinating. And he's often talked about pigments, raw pigments like that, and and mix them yourself. So I was thinking, well, Shabisaki, if he does a, you know, if he's doing a course, I'd fly over to Japan and go on to one of his watercolor courses. I think that would be really cool. I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of, it's called Gantai, yeah? So it's basically the the, uh, the art of, of painting with only natural pigments. It's really something to see, really, really interesting. Um, do, do a few Google searches and go and have a little look into it. It's quite, it's really, really something else. My first opportunity that I go to, but... Uh, that I get to go to uh, Japan. It's one of the countries that I'd really, I'd love to go to. Emma, it's been real. And I, I think you're a sensational, sensational woman. I want you to keep it up. You really carry on on the right track. Oh, thank you. You make me blush. <laughs> so it was uh, Steve who got you into the sport, your current husband. Do you not think he was just trying to get you into the sport to get into your pants or uh, sorry being so blatant? He stood there with much, much patience. You explained a few minutes ago uh, before the podcast. Uh, you said that he had a radio there for an hour and a half watching you flying up and down. And we also haven't mentioned the wonderful glider, the leopard that you were about to get in the super final. Of what gliders you've flown in the past and what you think of them, please? Gosh, uh, well, I started out with um, I started out with with uh, a Buzz Z from Ozone, and then it was the Attic Two, and then it was the Delta, and then it was the M4, and then and then I sort of ducked out because I I didn't want to fly a CCC glider. It was it was too uh, it was too much for me. And at the time, I think it was the R9, the R10, and then the R11. Um, 
And then I had a fantastic run with uh, with Nivyuk, which really kind of launched me into the competition, the competition scene, and knowing what it was like to be, to be able to stay up at the front with a, with a lead gaggle. And at the time, I started out with with an Ice Peak Six, had the Ice Peak Seven Pro, which I actually loved that glider. I mean, it didn't turn very well; it was quite flat, but it really went fast, and it gave the Enzos a run for their money at that time. So that was really exciting. I remember there was one incident in Slovenia um, above the very very high mountains with a sort of glacier at the top it was all snowy and and uh, we all got hoofed up into cloud and got disqualified uh, or a few of us did because we were just far too too much in the cloud but that was the day that I thought wow this this glide is absolutely absolutely amazing so that was with with Nivik and then um and then yeah I mean I've always I must say I've always had a love for ozone gliders so I I've mostly flown mostly flown um, ozone and my Zeno that I've had for a few years um, is is probably one of my most favourite gliders. A really cracking little Zeno that I bought secondhand from Joanna Hamney uh, a couple of years ago in Macedonia. Jin Jin Sok very very kindly offered to lend me a glider for the super final that was supposed to take place this year. So thank you very much, Jin. I still have it here. It's all tucked up in its little box, but I will mm-hmm. I will forward to to flying it at at some stage very soon have you flown it yet have you had a chance because petra of course uh, won a task on that uh, last year at the worlds and that glider excuse me must be so venomous and so very good so stable so predictable yet a really good performance you also mentioned a minute ago how you uh, were quite bummed that you didn't get to go to the super final um, yes, because it was it came as such a surprise. Um, it's something as a competition pilot you aspire to being able to go to the super final. It's sort of like the cherry on the cake, isn't it? And um, and I was so completely blown away that I qualified, having um, got a podium at the PwC in Brazil in September last year. Then and then we were literally until a week before until a week before the competition, we were all still hoping that it was going to happen. We were hoping that it was going to go on. Fortunately. It, the super super final had to be cancelled. I was I was a little bit gutted about that because you never know when you know as a pilot if if you know particularly at, at my competition level, you never know when you're going to get that opportunity to to go again. And I don't know when I'll get the opportunity. Maybe I'll never get an opportunity. Maybe I'll get lots. I don't know. But you know the first is always very very special. But the leopard, yeah, I saw the leopard. The performance of the leopard in uh, after we came back from Colombia. Steve and I went to Colombia to do a couple of a uh, couple of weeks of comp just to uh, to roll the knee to keep our hand in and Steve wanted to come back and do a comp just for fun and just to, to to prove to himself that he could still you know give people a run for their money so good for him and so he was flying a leopard and I saw during the two weeks of comp the, the, the performance of that glider was really absolutely incredible and I was very very privileged and very fortunate that Jin asked me if I'd like to fly one um, at the super final so hopefully I will get an, an opportunity later on this year at the Europeans would the dates just been pushed back to the end of August beginning of September so fingers crossed it's actually going to go ahead and um, between now and then, um, we'll get lots of uh, get lots of practice in. We were just discussing also a bit before this podcast as to what happens with the summer. What a bummer and everything will have to be done spontaneously. But you know what? That's one of life's small challenges. And as I see it, only a tiny speed bump on our road. On the leopard, uh, Torsten Siegel was telling me in his podcast how so nicely it goes. 
And Petra also was just reiterating the same thing. But to see the leopard actually in the flesh is actually quite a surprising thing. And I think you also mentioned Nivuk, who have also come out with a new glider now, the X1 or whatever it's called, which should also be quite a razor blade to deal with. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I, I think... Uh... We might have seen some um, some prototypes uh, around here, flying around here uh, a while ago. You can never quite tell because there's nothing really on the glider, but you can tell by the shape that it's, um, you know, it's a looks a pretty sweet little glider. So I'm sure that Nivea will have lots of successes with that. And Dominique, uh, Dominique Ciso, he's, he's, he's always gunning to have the best glider out there and, and the best pilots on them. Good, good luck to, to the Nivea team. Talking about the competition scene and gliders, I think there's still lots in store. I mean, of course, uh, you and I, or let's say, not say it's common knowledge, but it certainly, it certainly, I think would would be accepted that uh, ozone must be pretty close with the, an Enzo four. Um, of course, we we know that gin should. Well, again, you know, this is a, I'm speaking under correction here, but uh, that gin should be prepared to release. Uh, um, a, um, a boomerang 12, you know, or, or something in that kind of style. Maybe the leopard is good enough. For me, super exciting times yet again. Corona has only just put a very small spanner in the works. Russ Ogden telling me that he had a mountain full of gliders that they still needed to test because Ozone, of course, are ready to go with something. But yeah. if they have the possibility and look out more, would definitely be tweaking something before he releases it. So how do you feel about all of that? Well, I mean, I, I know that Ozone were, were working on a new uh, Xeno, and I know that was really close to coming out. For sure, you know, the Enzo, one wonders how they can make the Enzo better, but Ozone still managed to come up with something a little bit better, a little bit faster. And, you know, I mean, it's incredible. They are such an incredible team. Their R&D team is just amazing. So I'm pretty sure that they've got, you know, a few tricks uh a few tricks in the hat that we'll that we'll see. Uh, certainly, Niviuk has um, has been coming up with some super gliders uh, the last couple of years. And Jin, I mean, they're they're the four the four kind of uh, four leaders out there at the moment. I mean, I look at Bruce Goldsmith's Cure too. A bloody brilliant glider. Okay, uh, Bruce doesn't really have something in the D or the CCC category. Uh, look at Super. Look at lots of companies are coming out at Triple Seven. Lots of guys are coming with all sorts of nice stuff. I think it's great. I think that uh, at least we haven't reached the top. Let's say we've bounced on cloud base with the top of the inversion and that's it. Uh, fortunately for us consumers, we can be excited about the next best thing. Yeah, sure. I mean, and I think I think it's a lot, a lot uh, to do with the great pilot that's flying the glider as well. I mean, I remember years and years and years ago, Viperina, one of the Viperina brothers, I think it was Peter, who won, uh, who won a competition on an Alpina. Stunning. They're, they're incredible, those guys. I mean, yes, those guys are from another planet. They say it's <laughs> unbelievable. Right? And talking about modesty again. Oh, yeah, totally modest. And I do have to say that they trim, for me, they're the best trimmers in the world. Stefan Peter, if you're listening, thank you very, very much. Because that trimming for Brazil was top dollar. It was great. Well, be sure to send that on to him when uh, this is all cleaned up. Finally, the last question I'd like to throw at you is tell us the funniest thing that's ever happened to you in paragliding or in any sport that you've ever done. Yes, you're holding your hands to your head as if something extremely funny is about it. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, it was one of those. Um, it was it was on a on a very early cross country day and I took off from here in Annecy. I don't know. I'm, I've 
probably only been flying for a year or something and cross over the lake and I went to land in one of the the fields just below uh, the Rock de Boeuf not knowing anything about what I call my speed pants which is uh, you know when you're flying long distance or when you get to my age you probably need you know you need a nappy to fly with anyway I wasn't wearing one of those I didn't know about that at the time so I was absolutely dying for a piece so anyway I landed in this field struggled out of my harness pulled up my glider and everything was running to the bushes pull my pants down to have a pee behind the bush and the farmer the farmer comes round the corner in his tractor and has a full view of my my ass it was the most it was a very very embarrassing moment and and i i couldn't i couldn't stop so he just had to wait and he tipped his hat like that and turned the other way that probably is the most embarrassing moment. So I very soon learned learned how to, uh, yeah, water management or nappies after that. Because they now, you know, they've got loads of things for, they've got loads of things for girls. You guys have it pretty lucky, actually, don't you? I, I do want to say your story is delightful. It's great. And you may never have thought that maybe that was the hottest moment in your, in that farmer's entire visual experience. Maybe it was, maybe it was. I'd like to think so anyway. Well, I don't know maybe <laughs> it was certainly very entertaining and it makes, still makes me laugh and cringe as you saw I, I just I, something I, I will never forget Emma it's been absolutely great having you on the podcast uh, when you were reluctant and a little uh, skeptical of yourself that you wouldn't give something that would be up to standard I can tell you that you have delighted us all with a, a really wonderful wonderful time so thank you very much for participating and uh, spread the love really hope to see you this summer who knows what happens? Have you got something positive so you'd like to say and throw out there? Be happy. Live and be happy. Yeah, yeah. It actually takes very little, doesn't it? Yeah. It's life's very simple. Sometimes we have a way of complicating life and it's just totally unnecessary. Live the live the life and do whatever makes you happy. Don't let anybody tell you that you need to do this, or you need to do this. You do what feels right. It's great life for living. Go out there and do it. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you very, very much. Super cool. Cheers, you. Bye-bye.